Egypt is our life before Christ. Egypt is our life of slavery to sin before Jesus. Most of us have left that. And we're pilgrims in the wilderness. You know what the wilderness is? Life on this planet is the wilderness. I mean, we are not home here, right? We are pilgriming toward heaven. Welcome to Mana Bible Lessons. In this podcast, we take an in-depth expository look at the Bible. You're listening to the audio-only version. If you would like to see the video, visit manapodcast.com forward slash watch. And now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to Numbers chapter 9, Numbers chapter 9. You know, this rain is um, pretty cool. There's a lot of snow going. I have a friend of mine who's uh, one of the part owners in the uh, ski ski, uh, Sierra Summit, and I keep thinking, I was talking to Dave beforehand, I can't imagine a worse business to own than a ski resort. Your overhead is fixed and your income is dependent on snow, which uh, up there is pretty variable. At any rate... Uh, we're going to be, Lord willing, going through Numbers in Deuteronomy for the next uh, 12 weeks. Uh, the English title of this book, Numbers, is based on the two numberings or the two censuses that were taken of the nation of Israel. The first census takes place in chapters 1 to 4. The second numbering or census takes place in chapter 26 near the end of the book. So there were two national censuses taken of the of the, of the nation, and that's the title of the book. The Hebrew title of the book is found in the fifth word of the Hebrew text. I think it's probably the first phrase in your first verse that says, in the wilderness, which is Numbers 1, chapter 1. Uh, this book really records Israel's 39 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, Numbers is the fourth book in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch Obviously, penta meaning five. There's the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All were written by Moses. This book, Numbers, and Deuteronomy immediately subsequent to this were written the last couple of months of Moses' life. Uh, Moses is 120 years old when he wrote Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now, look at a little timeline with me. Uh, God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt about 1446 B.C., And at 1446, Moses was 80 years old and he was just beginning his life work. So for some of us in the room that are still trying to figure out what we're going to do when we grow up, there's hope. Moses was two-thirds of the way through his life before he really began to do the work that God called him to do. Uh, And we know that uh, the... Egypt, uh, Israel came out of Egypt in 1446 because the Bible tells us that Solomon began to build his temple 480 years after the Exodus. So the Exodus, 480 years later, Solomon began to build his temple. First Kings tells us that. And history, secular history, tells us that Solomon began his temple in 966 B.C. Back up 480 years, we've got 1446 at the time of the Exodus. So the Exodus occurs, Israel spends 40 years from the date of Exodus to the day they cross the Jordan, 40 years exactly from the time they leave Exodus until the time they enter the promised land. Moses is 120 years old when they enter the promised land. He doesn't get to go in, as you know. So at the very end of Numbers, they're camped across on the east side of the Jordan, ready to go in. Moses was in the last month of his life. The entire book of Numbers was written in about 30 days. That was the the last thing that Moses wrote. So the setting for this book, Numbers, is the wilderness. The word wilderness is mentioned in Numbers 48 times. Rather large theme. Another word for wilderness could be desert. There's so little rain in in where this is. Rob's going to show you a map in a little bit. Very little vegetation, very little rain. The only time there were trees is when there was oasis and the land was too dry, too dry to be farmed. As a matter of fact, it was barely suitable for pasturing flocks of sheep and goats and cattle. It was very, very difficult country, very, very dry, very, very rocky. Um, kind of looks like a moonscape. Maybe uh, when you get out by McKittrick, those of you who've ever driven to the coast and you're crawling up grosser grade and you look out there and you go, whoa, this looks like a moonscape. 
a lot of this territory looks like that very tough country, very dry, very rocky, nothing growing at that point in time. So when you look at the book of, of Numbers, almost all the events in this book take place in the first year after Exodus or the last year before they enter the land. So it covers 40 years, but the bulk of the activity takes place in the first year and in the 40th year. So there's a whole bunch of years in between where there's really not a lot written about. As a matter of fact, chapters 1 through 14, everything occurs in one year, 1445 B.C. Begins in the second month after they've left Egypt, 13 months after the Exodus. Everything after chapter 20 to the end of the book occurs in 1407 to 1406. So we've got two years where all the action in this book takes. So the actual book covers 38 years and nine months. And there's a little section in chapters 15 to 19. That's 37 years, four chapters. There's not a lot recorded about that because the purpose of Numbers is not to give us a detailed history day by day of the daily events that took place in the wilderness. The purpose of the book is to show how God dealt with the Israelite nation as they prepared to enter the promised land after, e after leaving Egypt. So Numbers really is talking about two generations of Israelites. First generation grew up in Egypt as slaves. They experienced God's supernatural deliverance through the 10 plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea. The first generation leaves Egypt, takes 12 or uh, 30 days to get to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, they stay for about 11 and a half months. They get the law. God comes down from heaven to Mount Sinai and gives them the law of Moses, gives them the law of Moses makes a covenant with them. And the covenant basically said, listen, if you obey me, if you follow my covenant and do my words, I will be your God and you will be my exclusive people. And the nation of Israel, this first generation says, everything God that you've said will do. We promise to follow you. We promise to obey you. God says, fine, you're my people. I'll be your God. So they're camped at the foot of Mount Sinai for 11 and a half months, and they construct a tabernacle in great detail. This is God's divine specifications. And that clears the end of the book of Exodus. Now the tabernacle's been built. They've got the law. They've spent about 11 and a half months at the foot of Sinai, and they're getting ready to go and travel toward Canaan through the wilderness to get to Canaan. This book can be divided into three parts, the book of Numbers. It's very, very simple. The first 10 chapters, Israel obeys God. The first 10 chapters, Israel obeys God. From chapters 11 to 25, Israel disobeys God. Big time. Chapters 26 to 36, Israel renews for obedience to God again. So they begin by obeying the first 10 chapters. The middle section, 11 to 25, is all about Israel's disobedience and the catastrophic consequences of their disobedience. And then chapters 26 to 36, Israel comes back and obeys God again. Now in the first 10 chapters, which we're not going to go in today, we're going to pick up the parable in, in chapter 9, God commands Israel to take a census. How many people are there? He organizes them for travel. They're going to be taking about 2.5 million people through the wilderness. You better get organized. He prepares the Levites for their job description and he sanctifies the people. When they're marching in chapters 10 through 12, they bellyache for the whole two chapters, three chapters. They complain. Scripture says murmur. It's kind of this underground, but they're complaining. They're whining, just like your children do, right? Just like we do from time to time. They come to Kadesh Barnea right on the southern edge of, of Canaan, and they refuse to go in. They say, God, there's giants there. They're bigger than we are. You can't handle it, even though you parted the Red Sea and you killed all the Egyptians. Da, 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 da. You're not big enough to deal with this. We are going back to Egypt, back into slavery, because we think we had a better deal there than we have with you. Now, that would hurt your feeling as a parent, right? <laughs> think about it. So God says, fine, have it your way. I'm going to condemn all of those of you that are 20 years and older, except Joshua and Caleb. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years until you all die. And that occurs between chapters 15 and 25. 
However, your children who you said those giants would kill, I, God, am going to bring them into the land of Canaan and they're going to enter the promised land. So Numbers is all about the journey of a nation from slavery in Egypt into the promised land of milk and honey, the land that God told them. This book gives us the record of God's expectations and Israel's response. Unfortunately, Israel's response, that first generation, was all about unbelief and disobedience. And these events were recorded for your and my benefit. Romans 15.4 said, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. You've heard the old phrase, if you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. You get to do it again. So if you dislike pain and you don't have to learn everything the hard way, then you read the experiences that God has written for our benefit and you say, how did it work out for them? And if it worked really well, we might want to do what they did. If it doesn't work really well, we might not want to do that, right? Everything in Scripture is written for our instruction. So for us today, we're like Israel. Most of us in this room are believers. We have left Egypt. Egypt is our life before Christ. Egypt is our life of slavery to sin before Jesus. Most of us have left that. And we're pilgrims in the wilderness. You know what the wilderness is? This planet. Life on this planet is the wilderness. I mean, we are not home here, right? We are pilgriming toward heaven, which is the promised land. So we're like Israel. We're on this journey, this pilgrimage through the wilderness from the life of slavery to sin, going toward heaven. Now, if Israel's going to get into the land of Canaan, they're going to need guidance because they're in the wilderness and there's not a lot of road signs and the GPS back in the day didn't work that well. More specifically, they were going to need a guide and God himself promised to go before them and guide them because God knew the way they needed to go. Rob is going to show you a map. He's going to keep it up for a while so you can get an idea of the route that they took. And I'm going to read to you Exodus 13 while you're looking at that map. This is when they're leaving Egypt. Now it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go after the 10 plagues, the firstborn in Egypt died. Pharaoh said, get out before the whole nation dies. That God did not lead Israel by the way of the land of the Philistines. That's the northern route there, just right up the coast. Follow the water line, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and they return to Egypt. Therefore, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness, that's south, of the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Verse 21, And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Here's the principle. God's way is seldom the shortest way, but it's always the surest way. God's way is seldom the shortest way, but it's always the surest way. Rob is going to put the map up in a few minutes again, and I'm going to have you look at the map and realize that Israel could have just followed the coastline of the Levant, and gone straight from Goshen, straight up into Canaan. You could have taken a straight line. That would have been the shortest route, right? Just go straight from Goshen. And you can walk that in a matter of a few days. You could literally walk from Goshen into Canaan in probably less than a week, week and a half. It's not that long. See, we humans, we typically think that the best way to get to destination is what? The shortest route right? Always go the shortest route. Your GPS will do that for you routinely. It will tell you typically the shortest way, right? So we want to get there, wherever there is, we want to get there as fast as possible. Always. Always, 100%. The problem, that short route would take them through the land of the Philistines. You're going to notice on the map, you're going to see the cities of Gaza and Ashkelon, 
you don't see some of the other ones. The Philistines had been there for some time and they were a warlike people who'd immigrated from Crete and they were obviously not a friendly people. You try and march through their land, you're gonna have warfare on your hands. And the Israelites had been slaves for 400 years and knew absolutely nothing about warfare. The Philistines were experienced warriors, would have wiped them out, and God said, if I take you the direct short route through the land of the Philistines to get into Canaan, as soon as you get opposition and conflict, you are going to what? Go back to Egypt because you don't want the struggle. You don't want the conflict. We get tempted to do that today, don't we? We run into opposition when we follow God and we go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought this was supposed to be easy. No, it's not easy. The walk of faith through the wilderness in this life is not easy. See, Israel was confused. Israel thought their destination was Canaan. They thought the promised land was the destination. That was their physical destination, but it wasn't their ultimate destination. Their real destination was God himself. Israel had a blind date to meet with God at Mount Sinai. Now, they didn't know that, but God knew that they were going to have to spend a year at Mount Sinai getting to know him before they would be equipped to get into the land. They had seen his power in the 10 plagues, but they really didn't know him. They really didn't have an intimate relationship with God. They'd seen the 10 plagues, they'd seen the Red Sea, they'd go, man, this God is powerful. But they didn't know his character, they didn't know his grace, they didn't know his mercy, they didn't know his forgiveness, and especially they didn't know his holiness. And he was going to meet them in Mount Sinai, come down from the mountain, reveal himself to them, give them his law, and make a covenant with them. And that was going to take about a year before they got into the land. Now, for you and I, has God ever led you on a path that seemed to be a major detour from where you thought the path should go? Of course. And you've had some interesting conversations with the Lord about that. God, did your GPS battery just die? I mean, you wanted to turn left here? Really? But, but there's where I'm going. So we get into arguments, God, about what the destination is. Because we fail to understand that getting to our destination may not be God's agenda. God has destinations on the route that he wants to take us that are far more important. And God knows that we need to be prepared before we get there. See, whether they were in Egypt or in the wilderness in the promised land wasn't the real issue. The real issue was not their physical location, it was their spiritual orientation. And the same is true of us. We often, sometimes I think we human beings are like dogs that chase cars. You know, man, we develop intricate strategies for chasing that car and getting the car and cutting them off and getting the shortcut. And then the car stops and we get the car. And what does a dog do with a car? Don't go there. So Israel loves the idea of a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And you and I do too. We say, man, land flowing with milk and honey, it's going to be great. But the promised land is meaningless without a living relationship with God himself. I don't care how great your life is here. I don't care how much your health is, how much money you have, how much friends you have, how much career you have, how much all the good stuff you have in this life, you can get it all. And without a relationship with the God of the universe, it's meaningless. Amen? It's meaningless. Our real promised land is heaven. And the essence of heaven is about having a relationship with the God of glory. Israel has to learn that lesson. And we do as well. Now, we live on the other side of the cross, so we can have that eternal life relationship with God through Jesus Christ, even when we're in the wilderness. And God wanted that for the nation of Israel as well. See, God had promised them, you're going to get to the promised land. You're going to get to Canaan. I'm going to get you there, but they were going to have to fight for it. Yes? God just wasn't going to disappear all the opposition and make it easy for them to walk across. They had no idea how unprepared they were for the battles that were yet to come. God knew exactly the enemies they would face in Canaan, and he knew exactly what he was going to have to do to prepare them to face those battles and fight those battles. And he knew their greatest need was not physical force, it was a living faith. 
It was a robust faith. It was a strengthened faith in God himself. And the only way their faith in him would grow strong is through trusting trials, troubles in the wilderness. You know one of the advantages of the wilderness? You didn't have any options. Has God ever put your life where there was no other option but to trust him? Because there was no other choice. It was trust him or there was nothing else. I think many, many times the Lord will strengthen our faith by putting us in circumstances where we have nothing else to trust but him. That's by design, not by accident. God was going to give Israel the promised land, but that would only occur if they trusted him and picked up their swords and fought by faith that God's strength was enough to get the job done. Now, you and I have no idea what struggles we're going to face tomorrow, do we? If you do, you're unusual and you're probably delusional, but at any rate, you and I have no idea what struggles we're going to face tomorrow. Some of you look in the mirror and go, yeah, I'm going to have trouble with the body tomorrow. I get that, right? But here's what's fascinating. God knows exactly the struggles you're going to face tomorrow. And he knows the struggles I'm going to face tomorrow. And he has arranged your circumstances and my circumstances today to prepare us for the struggles we're going to face tomorrow. So when we look at our circumstances today and we go, I don't get it. God, why are you taking me this route instead of the route I want to go? Because he knows what tomorrow is going to bring. And he is preparing us today and equipping us and strengthening our faith and putting us through the paces in the wilderness to strengthen our faith for what he has planned for us tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to read, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to read the verses 15 to 23, follow along, and I want you to note several things about this, and I'll talk about it when we get done, but this is an unusual passage. Verse 15. Now on the day the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the clouds settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped, and they did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. Got it? <laughs> when scripture repeats something, that's an emphasis. They didn't use three exclamation points, LOL, all this other stuff, you know, to tell you it was real important. They repeated it. Now at the command of the Lord shows up how many times? For those of you that were counting. Seven times, it's a perfect number in scripture. You get the feeling, who's in charge here? You should know that God's in charge here, right? Pretty obvious. Keep that theme in mind. Verse 15, on the day the tabernacle was erected, this is, they aren't set out yet, the day they erected the tabernacle, end of Exodus, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and the evening it was like the appearance of fire until morning, it was continuously, the cloud would cover the tabernacle by day, the appearance of fire by night. Here's the principle. The greatest blessing for God's people is God's presence. The greatest blessing for God's people is God's presence. So Israel has now camped at the Mount Sinai. They finished building the tabernacle according to divine specifications about 11 and a half months after getting at Sinai. And when they finished building the tabernacle, all the specifications, it's all set up precisely according to the word of the Lord. 
the glory of God comes down in the cloud and covers the tabernacle. Exodus 40, verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire on it by night in the sight of the house of Israel. So the cloud is a visible picture of the presence of God. When the cloud shows up, God's presence is visible. The holiness of God is present, of course, among the sinfulness of man, which is pure grace. Remember, the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting. It was the point where God came down from heaven and met with sinful man. The tabernacle was a meeting tent, right, where God, holy God and sinful man would meet. That's why the sacrificial system of blood sacrifice was instituted there. God's holiness was so overwhelming that Moses couldn't enter the tent. It's interesting that it says God never abandoned his people. The, the cloud was with them at the tent of meeting by day, by night, and it was that way for 40 years. Now they flaked out on God and forsook him multiple times, but the cloud never forsook them. There was not even one day in their pilgrimage where they traveled without the visible presence of God. And Jesus has said the same thing. What did he say? I will never leave you or forsake you, even though you are flaky and will forsake me. Now that's, he didn't say that, but we do that. So the cloud didn't only represent God's presence. It represented God's guidance. Look at verse 17. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, that phrase shows up seven times, the sons of Israel would set out. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Here's the principle. We're going to talk about guidance. How does God guide his people? Here's the principle. God guides our lives through his spirit, his word, his people, his providence, and sanctified common sense. God guides our lives through his Spirit, his word, his people, his providence, and sanctified common sense. I said sanctified on purpose because common sense sometimes is pretty stupid. Okay, just saying. Years ago, Marin and I went hot air ballooning near San Diego. And when you get in a hot air balloon, you know something? Wherever the wind goes, you go, right? Jesus described the Holy Spirit to Nicodemus using those words in, in John 3.8. He says, the wind blows wherever it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or whether it's going, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. See, the wind blows where it wants. You can't see the wind directly, but you can see what the wind does. You just look at tornadoes, you can see what the wind does. So Jesus was making the point to Nicodemus that spiritual life, being born again, that was the theme there, is the work of the Holy Spirit. New spiritual life is invisible, but the results of new spiritual life are very, very, very visible. The Holy Spirit's not just the giver of our life in Christ, but he's our guide. And that's what we're talking about now. The Holy Spirit really is the, if you will, the wind behind the sail in our sailboat of life, and he pushes our boat through the water in the direction he wants to go. Just sidebar. The Holy Spirit will probably not lead you in a humanly predictable path. Have you noticed that the Holy Spirit sometimes directs your lives in unpredictable ways as far as you're concerned? There's an old saying that human beings tend to believe that the right path is the path of least resistance. Isn't that the path that we usually would prefer to take? Let, let's just take the path of least resistance. Let's kind of take the easy way and there's an old saying that goes, following the path of least resistance is what makes rivers crooked. God does promise to divide guidance, however, and it's imperative that we take him up on that because we need divine guidance, and these five methods are the way God guides us. He promises that in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. 
as he defines straight. So in Exodus, this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire are pictures of God the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that God never asked the children of Israel, where do you want to go? I'll lead you. God's not a politician who gets in front of the parade and says, I'm the leader of the parade. God decides when it's time to stay, when it's time to move, how long they stay, how long they move. Whenever the cloud lifted up, the nation packs up, and they, when the cloud moved, they move. When the cloud stayed, they stayed, and it gets repeated over and over and over. And the cloud's always leading from the front, right? The cloud never follows the people and lets them choose, which means the Holy Spirit is vitally interested in leading our lives. We're less interested in listening to that leadership. Don't get ahead of the Holy Spirit. It's a reliable way to walk into danger. It's interesting, the phrase, at the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. So they always knew what God's will was. Just look at the cloud. I imagine that they probably had, the Levites had 24-hour watch on the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud because if it lifted up at 3 a.m., pack up, get ready to go. When it's settled down, put up your tents, right? And I'm sure sometimes the cloud would settle in spots that they said, why here? And at times they were probably at a place where there was an oasis and they go, you know, we could just settle down here. And the next morning the cloud goes up and they're going, Lord, but this is a really nice place. Can we just camp for a month or two? Bring the cloud back down. Now, why are you leaving? It says they packed up whenever God packed up. See, we actually have a far more intimate relationship with God than watching a cloud. First of all, we have the Holy Spirit to guide us. John 14, 6 says, Jesus is telling his disciples and us, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. John 16, 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Um, how many have ever traveled? How many have ever traveled and hired a local tour guide to show you around? Use a local tour guide because they know the territory, right? They know the sites, they know the, the points of interest, they know the things you want to see, they know the things you didn't even know about. Tour guides help us from getting lost, and they also help us understand what we're seeing. They guide us, right? The Holy Spirit is our infinitely wise spiritual tour guide through our life on earth. He always knows where we are because he lives inside us, and he also knows where we need to go. God has a plan for your life, and the Holy Spirit is the tour guide to lead you through that plan. And we will never get lost if we ask for his wisdom and then follow it, right? James 1.5 says, but if any of you lack wisdom, that would be all of us, yes? Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach and will be given to him. Here's where we make a major mistake. We ask God for wisdom, and he gives it to us. And we believe that if we have the directions, we can implement them on our own. No worries. Just give me the directions. Give me the map. I'll find my own way. I can do it myself, right? God told me where to go. I can do it myself. Big mistake. Elizabeth Elliot, missionary, Jim Elliot's widow uh, down in Latin America, tells of two adventurers who stopped by to see her. She was down there in the jungle, all loaded with equipment for the rainforest east of the Andes. These adventurers asked for no advice. They just wanted a few phrases to communicate with the local Indian tribes. She writes, sometimes we come to God as these two adventurers came to me. We're confident and we think well-informed and well-equipped, but has it occurred to us with all our accumulation of stuff that is something is missing? She suggests that we often ask God for too little we know what we need. God, just tell me yes or no, please. Just a simple question, yes or no. Or, or give me a road sign, something quick and easy to point the way. What we really ought to have is the guide himself. Maps and road signs, a few useful phrases are things, but infinitely better is someone who has been there 
and knows the way. So when we ask God for guidance, we probably should ask for the guide and then listen day by day, moment by moment, and every day our journey in this foreign land. So God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. Second way God guides us is through his word, the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 104 says, From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. There's certainly a lot of guidance there. So if you want an operator's manual for life, you've got it. He wrote it. It's called the Bible. Everything we need to know about God, everything we need to know about this life or our planet, his plan for us on earth and eternal life in heaven is found in the Bible. And it's the only reliable guide. You can read lots of stuff on the internet about living life, and it's not reliable because it's written by fallen people, but the Word of God is completely reliable. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to teach us the will of God. So if you want guidance for life, one of the best ways is to saturate yourself with the operator's manual. Now, Psalm 119 says, God's Word is like a flashlight, a brilliant flashlight. It uses to what? Light your path so you don't trip and stumble and break a hip and get pneumonia and go see Jesus, right? You're supposed to get that. If you want to know God's word, there's five things you do. You listen to it. You read it. You study it. You memorize it. You meditate on it so that you can obey it, right? Third thing. God guides us through his Holy Spirit, through his word. He guides us through wise counsel of his people. He gives us wise counsel. This room is loaded with mature Christians who have oodles of life experience. And I am astonished at the wisdom that God has taught many of you through scar tissue. And your experiences are so vital we go, man, Brad, that was the stupidest decision ever made. God wants to save somebody else from making that same stupid decision, and you can help them. You can say, don't go down that path. Broke both legs twice, right? You know? So God, the experiences you've had can be used to save somebody else from picking up scar tissue. Proverbs 24, 5. A wise man is strong. And a man of knowledge increases power, for by wise guidance you will wage war, and an abundance of counselors there is victory. Now it's imperative that you get godly counsel, not worldly counsel. Any advice that disagrees with Scripture comes from Satan, obviously. By the way, the vast majority of advice you find on the internet is not godly. It's worldly. It's in direct opposition to the Bible. There is a way that seems right to a person, but the end is the way of death. So make sure when you get godly advice, you get it from people that are walking with Jesus and informed by the Holy Spirit. Fourth thing, God guides us through Holy Spirit, through word, through godly advice as people. He guides us through providence. He guides us through his control of circumstances. See, behind the scene, God arranges or allows every single circumstance that occurs in our life. Now, this is probably best used in conjunction with some of the other ways. Circumstances are probably best used for yes or no questions. Some people have called this an open door or a closed door. Have you ever prayed, God, I am so thick, make it obvious, right? If you're going to close the door, triple bar the thing, put iron gates on it so when I run into it, I'll know the thing is closed, right? <laughs> And if it's open, grease it so I'll slide down. You know, I'll know it's, I, I mean, I've told the Lord that a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm slow. I need it pretty slick. So if you're pursuing a path and the way seems blocked at every turn, God may be telling you no. If you ask someone to marry you and they say no, that would be a closed door. Now, whether it means not now or not never, time will tell. Uh, when I was 27... I, played, I applied for officer's candidate school in the United States Navy. I just had ankle surgery, and my left ankle had pins and plates and bone grafts and all sorts of metal in it. And they said, you're a board recommendation first pick, but 
you got to get all the metal out of your ankle before we'll consider you. Well, I said, nah, that's about 18 months from now. They said, we'll come back in 18 months. Well, in 18 months, God grabbed me by the nose and pulled my life in a completely different direction. If that would have been the case, I wouldn't have been here. So sometimes God makes it pretty obvious, slams the door, you're not going through it. Now, not every circumstance is, is determinative. Just because you get accepted into a particular university doesn't necessarily mean it's God's will for you to attend that one. Now, some of you are going, well, that doesn't apply to me. Well, I got one that applies for you. Just because the very first physician you talk to wants to do surgery on you doesn't mean that that surgeon's the most qualified. It also doesn't mean that surgery is necessarily the best option. So you need to use wisdom in looking at circumstances and providence and things of that nature. Now, Jesus illustrates that principle when he tells the disciples to go on their first missionary journey. And the question is, where are we going to stay when we go on this missionary journey? What about housing? Matthew 10, Jesus said, whatever city or village you enter, Inquire in it who is worthy and stay at their house until you leave that city. As you enter their house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. It's not worthy, take black your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. So how do we know where to stay? Jesus said, when you enter a village, ask around. Who's a godly person here? And then you knock on their door. Ask them if they'll give you lodging. If they say yes, you got your answer. If they say no, you got your answer, right? Circumstances say yes or no. But you won't know if you don't knock on the door and ask. Ask, seek, and knock. You know the parable. General rule, as long as your actions are agreeing with Scripture, godly advice, prayerful submission to the Holy Spirit, Assume a yes until you get a no. Now, if you're saying, Lord, should I commit adultery to this person? You don't need to make that an object of prayer. You already know the answer to that. <laughs> Scripture says, no, don't do that. So you assume an open door and let God close it or redirect you. Last way God leads us is sanctified common sense, discovering and doing as well. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You have, I could spend hours on this topic. God himself instructs you, transforms our minds so that we think biblically and accurately and eternally and infinitely wise like God does. 2 Timothy 2, 7 says, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now that is an unbelievable promise. When you run into a wall and you say, Lord, I'm so confused, I have no clue what to do. I have godly people telling me do this. I got godly people telling me do that. What should I do? And he says, I will give you understanding. You submit to the Holy Spirit. You, pray, you saturate your mind with God's word. You get good advice with God's people. You're living in alignment with God's providence. Sometimes the answer is common sense. You know, for example, you shouldn't marry somebody you're not attracted to. If you can't carry a tune in a bucket, God is not calling you to a music ministry. <laughs> if blood sugar management's a problem, don't buy a bunch of carbs at the grocery store because they're on sale. Right? If retail therapy is causing your bank account real problems, don't go online on Black Friday to retail sites. And you go, well, Brad, that's a duh. Yeah. Sanctified common sense. Now, the truth of it is, this is a rare commodity today. Right? It's really rare. You and I say, well... I'm going to jump off the cliff here. It's pretty clear there's only two genders. God made them male and female. Well, we have people that believe there's as many as 56. I don't have that many fingers and toes to count. Some things are really common sense. Don't 
throw common sense overboard. God gave us a brain. He expects us to use it. Just saying. Verse 19. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped. You get the picture? God is in control of when they stayed and when they moved and where they went when they went. And he did it all with a cloud. And you and I have five very sophisticated mechanisms by which God guides us. Here's the principle. Fellowship with the Lord depends on obedience to the Lord. Fellowship with the Lord depends on obedience to the Lord. See, our union with Christ is unconditional. It's dependent on what Christ has done on the cross. He paid for our sins 100% his work. He adopted us into his family. You have the name Christian based on what he did. But our communion with Christ, the degree of intimacy we have with Christ is conditional. And it's dependent on our obedience he uses the, phrase, the, command, the command of the Lord seven times and the phrase, keep the Lord's charges repeated twice. How many of you have ever had a child that rebelled against you, disobeyed you? What happened to your fellowship with them? Was there a break in intimacy? You think? They still had your name, although sometimes you wondered. Sometimes they were so hard to parent, you just said, Jesus, why don't I just send them up to you and you parent them? You know, you're the perfect parent. I've often talked to parents who struggle with this, and they said, you know, if I only would have done this different, my child would have turned out different. And my standard comment is, God the Father is the perfect parent, and he's got a lot of screwed up kids. So mom and dad, your children are making choices irrespective of you. You are not responsible for their choices when they're adults. They're responsible. It breaks our heart. You will pray for them, you will weep for them, you will get on your face. Sometimes you want to slap them silly, but I know that resonated. It does hinder fellowship. Disobedience hinders fellowship between mom and dad and child, and it does the same with God. The degree of fellowship that they experience depends on the degree of submission. Here's the picture. You're in the camp of Israel. There's two and a half million people. You want to be close to God? Real simple, stay in the camp. If you choose to leave the camp and walk in a different direction and God's in a pillar, what's happening to your fellowship? It's kind of shrinking, right? If you left Israel's camp at night, there's a pillar of fire by night that covers the whole camp and gives you light. You're walking in the dark. And in that part of the country, there's lots of wildlife out there called rattlesnakes, all sorts of interesting things, vipers, etc. So it's kind of dangerous to walk in the dark. Now, if you left the camp during the daytime, you left the shade of the cloud. See, we get this thing, this, there's this little cloud. This cloud was miles big. This cloud covered the entire camp and shaded them from the sun. How in the world do you think they survived Desert heat of 110 degrees, 115 degrees. They had cloud cover for 40 years in the desert during the daytime. This cloud shaded them, right? You would be walking in burning desert heat. So God's cloud just didn't lead them. It covered them. It shaded them. It provided for desert heat. It provided light for them. And if you walked away from the camp, you walked away from one more thing. Daily manna. And you go, I'm so sick of this manna. Oh, well, go try and eat a scorpion. You know, the manna was supernatural. If you stayed in the camp, you got God's provision. So the fellowship they had with the king gave them provision and protection and presence, as our own Holly Colleen says. Psalm 73 is a good summary. It says, For behold, those who are far from you will perish, verse 28. But as for me, 
The nearness of God is my good. When you walk with God, when you let God guide your life, you remain close to God. Intimacy depends on proximity. You can write that down. I didn't invent that, but it's pretty good. Intimacy depends on proximity. Those of you that are married understand that. If you want to be intimate with your spouse, being around helps, you know? You can't sing like Elvis, baby, you were always on my mind and you're 3,000 miles away six months of the year. Your intimacy's gone to struggle. The same thing is true of the Lord. Someone once told me, I think it was Howard Hendricks that once said it, right now you are as close to God today as you choose to be. As you choose to be because he never moves. You have as much intimacy with Jesus Christ today as you choose because he never moves. So let's summarize. God's way is seldom the shortest way, but it's always the surest way. God's taking you in places that are not necessarily the direct route, but they're always the best route because he knows the destination you and I need to go. We get arguments about the path because we're arguing about the destination. Number two, the greatest blessing for God's people is God's presence. He is the great blessing to have an intimate relationship with him. There's no greater blessing in life. Number three, God guides our lives five ways. You have guidance. If you want guidance, you got it. His spirit, his word, counsel from his people, his providence or circumstance, and sanctified common sense. And lastly, fellowship with the Lord depends on obedience to the Lord. If sometimes you feel God's far away, one of the first things to say is, who moved? Clearly it wasn't him. Have I left the camp? Am I still operating under his cloud, his pillar of fire, his manna, his provision, his protection, his presence? Does that make sense so far? I don't think we have a problem with comprehension. Now it's compliance with that comprehension. And that's the blessing that the Lord has for you this week. Very, very excited you're here. Very, very excited about the book of Numbers. This is all about the life journey of faith. And Lord willing, we'll continue to explore that next week. So please be reading ahead. I love you all. And now that you know, do. You've been listening to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Mana Bible Lessons on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Mana meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. For more information about the podcast and class, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for joining us. And now that you know, do.